Beloved, if you have your Bible with you today, let's turn to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And today we'll be reading from verse 27 all the way down to verse 40. It's page 200 and, or sorry, 926 in my Bible, if that's a help to you. Okay, let me read it to you. I'm having a bit of a problem with my reading today, so bear with me. Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother, if a man's brother dies having a wife, And he dies without children. His brother should take up his wife and raise up his offspring offspring for his brother. Now look, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as a wife, as 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 wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her and he in like manner, and like manner the seven also And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to obtain that age... And the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or, or, nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and sons of, are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he did not, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all are for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that they dared not question him any more. Amen. And if you remember last week. We looked at the first question that was posed to Jesus. And it was the question posed by the religious leaders. Remember, I told you last week that these questions, the first question was was a secular question posed by the religious community. And then the second question is a religious question posed by the secular community. The Sadducees were a small party. They were the elite, the political elite. They were secularists. They did not believe in spiritual things. It tells us in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 23, verse 8, that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels, nor did they believe in the spirit. They were opposed to the supernatural. They believed that all we had here in this life was this life. They did not believe that God was active. And they certainly believed that when you die that you would be raised again or that there was an afterlife. They were pragmatic secularists. All we have is what we have in our hand. And they, that's not to say that they were antinomian. God forbid. They were not antinomian. That means lawless. But in fact, they were the keepers of the law. For them, the five books of the Pentateuch, the five books of, of Moses, were the most important books. And they held to those books religiously. They argued about the minutiae of the law. Again, they didn't do this for any hope of being rewarded by God. They did this as a way of social control. Jesus demonstrates in Matthew and in Mark how they themselves did not keep the law, but they used the law, the bureaucracy of the law, as a way of manipulating and controlling the nation. They 
used the law as a way of getting what they wanted. And they were the ones who were the interpreters of the law. Well, the law says this, but what it really means is this. They were fastidious, very careful in the keeping of the washing traditions. They were the ones who, who would offer up their, their tithes, their tenths. You know, the, if whatever you have, the, the tenth of your dandelions in your garden. You know, whatever you produced of the nettles, I would have nettles. The tenth of the nettles in my garden. Whatever you produced, and they were fastidious, very careful in the keeping of these things. They were the ones who ran the scam of the temple. They were the ones who used the temple to benefit themselves. We understand that there were two parties. The, 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 the Pharisee party, they were the main religious group. They were in the majority They were highly religious. They believed in the supernatural and the power of God. They believed in the afterlife. Indeed, some of the the Pharisees held to a hyper-resurrection or a hyper-afterlife. They believed that you would be raised in the very clothes that you died in. They believed that, that not only would you be raised up to new life, but that you would get your old life as well. They would they they believed in very foolish things. It was just the imaginations of their elders. And the Sadducees would poke fun at them. And the question that we're presented with today was their master stroke of how to confound, fuddle, confuddle the, the Pharisees. They would ask this question and the Pharisees would go into debate, debate mode. You know, and they would this scholar says this and that scholar says this. And, well, if we look at this part of Scripture in reference to that part of Scripture, and it would lead to endless debates where nobody could agree. Now, the question that they asked is based on Scripture. This does exist in Scripture, that if a man brother's wife, you know, a man, brother dies and he's married, doesn't have children. That was a way of preserving the bloodlines. But here, they're asking this, this ridiculous question. Herbably, just absolutely foolishness. And they come to these, what I love about this, he doesn't bite. They're throwing out the bait, the cheese of their trap. They're saying, come on, let's enter into this debate. And show everybody the foolishness of your position. And yet Jesus in his reply doesn't even respond to their question. Doesn't even try and answer it. In the other gospels, in both Matthew and in Mark, we are told that he begins this way. He says, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That was a slap in the face to these people. Because they credited themselves with being the the experts. They were like legalists, lawyers in that sense. They knew the book of Moses, all five of them, backward and, and forward and from the side and over the top. They could interpret them and twist them to the best of anyone's ability. And yet Jesus, in the beginning of this, exposes their hypocrisy, exposes exposes their lack of knowledge, exposes their lack of faith. For yes, they may have known what it said, but they did not believe it. For them, the, the law of God was simply a bureaucracy. It was a way of doing things. It was the letter of the law. And again, we would, they would say, we, we can't deviate from the letter of the law, but then they, they would interpret it, twist it. To whatever suited them. Whatever they were convenient and comfortable with. And Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of them and their foolishness. And the futility of their thinking. They knew not the scriptures. They didn't understand the Bible. Neither did they understand the power of God. He goes into this little defense of the resurrection. He explains to them, gives us a little insight of how things will be in that age that is to come, the eternal age. 
Now this week, as I was preparing for this, I said to Sarah today, there has never been a more hotly debated subject than when does the resurrection begin? Beloved, beloved, look that one up. My goodness, I was like, down this rabbit hole, down that rabbit hole. When does the resurrection begin? Well, has it begun already? Jesus was resurrected, was he not? The Bible says at one point that the resurrected, the righteous are resurrected here. And then it says at another point the, the others are resurrected there. And then it says we enter into the, the uh, eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. My goodness, hotly debated. And I have to be honest, uh, I have my opinions. Must, one must be very careful when it comes to uh, making a complete declaration. But Jesus tells us of what people will be like in that age that is to come. He tells us that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, we marry and have children because we die. And we must replace ourselves. Uh, I think I, I said to Don, I was... Going through, and some of the other guys maybe I was going through the statistics. I, I'm on a statistic binge at this present moment. Going through the numbers of how many people live where and who, and how many people live in Finland, and how many people die in Finland, how many children are born every year in Finland. And I discovered that more people die in Finland every year than are born. We are in a deficit of about 4,000 people, maybe 6,000, depending. We make up that deficit by bringing in foreigners. Finland has an agreement that they take in uh, 8,000 to 13,000 immigrants or immigrants, refugees every year. We have been doing so since 2016, 2013. We began to bring them in, but then we made a, a, an agreement, a new agreement in, in 2016. And so we bring about 8,000 to 13,000 what's that what they're called every year and that's how we keep the, the, the majority of, uh, of the population growing that's how the population is still growing because if we didn't the population would be shrinking and shrinking and shrinking I, I, another fact was 100 years ago just over 100 years ago Finland Svensk people were, 100, were 20% of the population they made up 20%. Today, they make up only 5.23 of the population. Foreign speaking, majority of which being English speaking people, now make up a percentage of 8.3, 8.4 of the population here in Finland. It is incredible. Incredible. In the life that is to come, there will be no death, and therefore, people do not need to reproduce. There will not. There will be no babies born in heaven. We are not Jehovah's Witnesses. We do not believe such things. And therefore, there will not, there will not be a need for marriage. I like what Jesus says here in verse 35. But for those who are worthy, are counted worthy to obtain that age, that is a real slap in the face of these people. Jesus is pointing out that there is an age to come. That there is a resurrection. That this life is not the end. But there is a continuation later. And not all people will enjoy that. Not all people will partake in that. Not everyone will attain to that age. That is such a blessing and, and a, a terror to us all. There is a chance that we might not get in. Right? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have accepted him as your Lord and Savior and your faith is actively in him, beloved, you are saved and you're going to heaven. Christ died for your sins and now you are born again 
elevated to the, uh, the position of a child, a favoured child in the affections of God. He has given you everlasting life that no one can ever take away, that no one can remove from you. You cannot lose it because you did not earn it. It was given to you as a gift. And you are preserved by the grace of God and the mercy of God and his affections. But beloved, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, if you seek to attain this salvation, if you seek to elevate yourself in the affections of God by your own good deeds, by your own works, by your own efforts, you will fail. Because the Bible says all of our good works are as filthy rags before him. There's nothing that you and I can do to obtain that level of perfection. The Bible's standard is perfection. For you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength perfectly every day of your, since your conception until your death. One sin is enough to break it all. And beloved, you and I have committed sins since the day we were born. We were born in sin, the Bible says. Our existence is an offense to God. If one want to address the, the, the issue of inherited sin, that we have inherited Adam's sin, but not only Adam's, our parents' sin. Those things that were judgments that were cast down upon us from the generations that were before us. Now, you and I, we're in our individualistic state. We don't really consider having to carry the, the sins of others. We think, well, I'm a self-contained identity. But God judges the nations in their rebellion. The peoples in their rebellion. Not just the individual. We as Baptists, we're very individualistic. We're very kind of, you know, I stand for myself. No one can stand for me. But Adam was our federal head, our representative. Jesus Christ is our representative. He is our head. He's the one who represents us. There is this issue of the sins that we carry. The imperfection that we bear in our own souls. The warped image of God. This distorted image of God that is within us if we are in our sins. We must never take it for granted. You know, one of the big issues that we have as Calvinists or people who hold to the doctrines of grace in this age is time and time you'll hear people accuse us, well, you believe in once saved, always saved. As if somehow in some way that's a crime. And that then they say that we, we teach that if a person comes to faith in Jesus and then walks away and lives a sinful life, that they're still saved but can live like the devil. That's not at all what we say or hold to. A person who comes to faith will continue in that faith. They may rise up or they might falter and fall. They might stumble. They might go back. But the Lord will raise them up again. And they will be ongoing in their work of sanctification. We do not believe that a person who accepts the Lord Jesus Christ and is born again for real can ever go back to the world. Why? Because it is God who keeps them. Not themselves. They are the child of God in the arms of God and are preserved by God. They are vessels of the Holy Spirit. And it is that Holy Spirit that keeps them. Christ's blood purchased them forever. Those who are accounted worthy to obtain that age, that, that should frighten us. Those who do not know the Lord. It should stir you and I who are believers to pray all the more harder for those who do not know the Lord. To be moved by mercy. To act graciously to those around us. For we were just like them. And except for the grace of God, we would be still like them. 
Jesus, in answering these Sadducees, he does not debate with them. He attacks them and goes straight to the heart, not attacking them to destroy, but in in such a way as to expose the hypocrisy, their lack of knowledge, and to call them to salvation. He tells us again in verse 36, Nor can they die anymore. In the resurrection there will be no death. It's not a surprise to you and I. The word resurrection in the original means the raising up or to be risen up. To to rise up again. We will not be spirits or ghosts in the resurrection. Ooh. You know, have you see these children's films where you see the, the world's understanding of what it means to be a you know in the afterlife, and they always portray them as some sort of spectre, some sort of translucent, warped representation of what they were. You know, Ghostbusters, I think of the little green mushroom or onion ghost, you know that thing. And people are always, ooh, that's not how it looks in the afterlife. The Bible tells us that we will be raised up in the flesh, different than what we are today, but we will still have a body. The resurrection, again, we look at the Lord Jesus Christ as the the living evidence of what it means to be resurrected. Jesus had a body, a perfected body. So you and I also will have a perfected body that will never die. The Bible says that they are equal to that of the angels and Our sons of God being the sons of the resurrection. That resurrected life that Jesus was awarded with. Jesus who was awarded the resurrection. He lived a perfect life. In a perfect obedience to God. And all the blessings that God had reserved for those who keep his law. Were lavishly poured out upon Jesus. And now through his mercy and his grace. He shares that resurrected life with you and I who believe. We partake of his life. We are one body, one flesh together with him. It is his life that maintains us and keeps us. Not your best effort or your happy thoughts. And then Jesus goes on to his... uh, main attack but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised these people were great admirers of Moses they were the fans of Moses they were the followers of Moses they saw themselves as the continuation on of the cult of Moses the law keepers and they would make much of Moses he's our prophet He's the one we follow. And they would legalistically do so. But Jesus here demonstrates that their understanding of Moses was wrong. For all of their vast knowledge, worldly knowledge, intellectual knowledge, they were missing the mark. They could not see the truth because of all of their bias and all their prejudice and all the rebellion rebellion against God he points to Moses right at the beginning of Moses' career as the leader of Israel to that point when God appears to Moses at the burning bush that first time the very beginning it was that occasion that then set the president for for all of Moses' life That encounter with God changed him forever and transformed his eternal future. That was when the, 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 we could say the, the fountain was turned on, the tap was turned on. This is the most important encounter that Moses has with God. And he says here, when he called the Lord, when Moses called God, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. 
And he points out that Moses himself believed in the resurrection. They would say that the resurrection was nowhere taught in the Pentateuch. That it was a, a hit the pole. An imagination, I think that's what it is in English. An imagination of the prophets. It was an interpretation of what the prophets said. It was just an illustration. They didn't really take seriously the prophets. They wanted Moses and just the law. But yet here's Jesus demonstrating that the resurrection is a main theme of the Old Testament. That they had a living hope in an afterlife. They had a living hope in a supernatural. Something beyond ourselves so that we wouldn't be held prisoner by the bureaucracy, by the the rule keepers, by the ones, the do's and the don'ts, the legalists, who they themselves don't keep the law, but in, in caps, they capture others and, and force others to keep the law and to do things that they themselves don't do. And here Jesus is demonstrating so very clearly that the teaching of the resurrection, the expectation of the resurrection, of being raised from the dead, of one day having to be gathered before God in judgment, and then proceeding from judgment either to an eternal death, torment, punishment. Receiving that which you desire, eternal separation from God. Remember what we said when we looked at Psalm 125 today. God gives people what they want. And if people want to be separated from him for eternity, he will give them that. And allow them to inhabit that place of utter darkness. Of continual burning. Where the worm never sleeps. A place of continual gnashing of teeth. Of agony. God gives them over to their own desires. Or to that place of eternal peace. The shalom, shalom of God. That place of enjoyment. That place of worship. That place of in his presence. As a member of his family. Safe and secure. and per, per, Remember Jesus said that he goes to his father's house to prepare for us a place. A place prepared for us. Where we would never feel pain. Where every tear is wiped away. Where there is no more sickness. Where there is no more death. That we are able to enjoy God for forever. Here Jesus is smashing the argument of the Sadducees, exposing them in front of the people. And there are so many lessons for you and I to learn here. I think first and foremost is, Jesus did not play according to the world's rules. I don't know about you, but I have often had people come to me with these questions. You know, they're, aha, questions, I got you. Whether it's to do with Calvinism or the the, the doctrines of grace, whether it's to do with the resurrection or the the gifts of the Spirit, they'll come and they'll ask their ha-ha questions. You know, I I had this dinner lady once from a place that I worked in, a lady, a church tante, you know, Uh, and she said to me, where did did Adam and Eve get wives for their sons? Ha-ha-ha! As if to say, aha! And then this same lady came and what about dinosaurs then? Aha! Aha! Answer me that. What about the Ice Age? And she would come and try and just... And, and the temptation is always there to try and argue or to convince, play her game, their games, to try and reach them, to try and just you know, help them to see the truth. But to be honest, they're not really interested in the truth. They just want to see you squirm on the hook. They just want to trip you up and trap you to bring you down and make you stumble and bumble in your faith by asking ridiculous questions. Can God move an immovable object? Is God so powerful that he can make a rock that he can't lift? 
What a stupid question. What a stupid question. Jesus didn't play their game. He went to the real core of the subject. For you not you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And he rebukes them. It's a serious rebuke. It's an open rebuke. He did it in front of everybody. And then he approached them about their need for salvation. He took their hero, Moses, and radically shifted their world. Radically transformed their thinking. Or provoked them. You know, they, Moses was always their fortress, their strong place. They would stand in Moses. Moses gave us the law. And the law says, doesn't say anything else about this or that. This. Not really understanding it. Jesus did not play their game. He did not seek to intellectually engage with them. He sought their heart and called them to repentance. Exposed their error. And lifted up what the Bible said. You know Spurgeon once said, The Bible, sir, the Bible does not need your help in defending it. As a lion does not need your help in defending it. Unchain the lion. He'll defend himself. Sir, unchain the scriptures and the scriptures will defend themselves. Just as that lion does not need your help in defending it. Lion is well armed. So too the scriptures do not need your help in explaining them or defending them. Allow the scriptures, that two-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword. Allow it to pierce through the armor, through the flesh, through the body of a person, deep down into their heart, into their soul, into their innermost being. That God might touch them and quicken them and awaken them. Second lesson is that, friend, there is a life to come. We know this for certain. We know this more than we know that there will be a tomorrow. How so? Jesus died and was resurrected. He is the living proof of the resurrection. The Bible counts 14 separate times when Jesus was appeared to people after the resurrection, post, post-crucifixion appearances in his resurrected form. That's not the 14 different people, that's 14 different instances. In one instance, he appeared to 500 people at a go. Jesus is our evidence, and it's in him we trust. We understand, know that there is a life to come because of him. And somebody once said to me, how do you know there's, there's, how do we know that there's life after death? No one's ever died and come back. Nobody really that we can trust in Jesus Christ did it, I said. I said, see, there's the difference. I believe that Jesus died and the Bible tells me. Anything. But you can't trust the Bible. Really? It's a historical document. You know, it, do we believe there's more evidence about Jesus than there is dinosaurs? There's more evidence about Jesus than there is Julius Caesar and his escapades in Gaul. Historians, scientists, theologians, all kinds of people have sought to discredit the scriptures and never once have they been able to. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. How do we know? Because 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. He's still changing lives. People are still trusting in him. We're still talking about him. Can you name me anybody else 2,000 years ago? I mean, okay, some of us can. But who are, but let me say, can you name me anybody else who died 2,000 years ago who's as equally famous that every single person that you meet will know who they are? I mean, I know a lot of people, a lot. Uh, I can fill a wee book with people that I know from 2,000 years ago. I, I read my history. I love the early church history. But if I mention their names, you'll be like, I don't know who that is. 
And I don't know who that is. And we have no documentation. There is not a, a, a library full of documentation about these people. With Jesus Christ, it is different. He rose from the dead. He is the resurrected man, the firstborn of the resurrection, the first fruit of the resurrection. He, in him, we find our hope. What God did with him, he will one day do with us. That is our great hope. We must understand that the life that is to come is guaranteed because we see the evidence of it in Jesus. Again, Christ gives us a little glimpse of what that life will be like. It will not be like the life that we have now. You will not just continue on doing the same things you're doing now. It will be different. Paul says this as well, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 15, I think. Talking about the, the essence of the life that is to come, that resurrected life. But also, beloved, I think another point would be the power of the Old Testament. How that we as New New Testament believers often just hold ourselves to the New Testament, to the Gospels and the Epistles, to Revelation. And there's an absence of the Old Testament Scriptures. Our hope is formed and forged in the writings of Paul or John or these other fellows. There we find the promises that really speak to our hearts and give us hope. And those things are great and good. And they're designed for that way. But there is a deeper life in the Old Testament. There are hidden gems there for those who will seek them. Things that will give you strength and boost you up and keep you strong. Give you the fire in your belly to be able to be enthusiastic and passionate about Christ. To help you defeat those sins. To help you defeat those doubts. To be able to help you be a more effective witness for Christ in this world. In your words and in your deeds. Let us not dismiss the Old Testament nor its writings. Here Jesus demolishes this this argument, this key question, this silver bullet of the Sadducees. This is the thing, this is their big gun. This is what they would pull out every time. When when things got difficult, when, when the debate got too hot, the Pharisees pulled this card out. This was their, you know... They're big gone. They're the serious question. And that, that usually put an end to all the debate. Oh, no one had ever defeated this question. No one had ever been able to, to get past this. And yet Jesus deals with it and puts it all down. By how? By using a simple, easy quotation or illustration from the Old Testament. I mean, he didn't have to, didn't write pages, didn't have to write a book, a thesis, a thousand words, a million words, whatever you write. He didn't have to do any of that. There wasn't having to seek sources here, there, and anywhere to, to find support for his argument. He simply said, have you not read? Do you not see that Moses, when meeting with God in the burning bush, said this? And that ended the argument. We see it ends the argument. Because... It says in verse 40, And after that they dared not question him anymore. They knew that they were beaten. And they were afraid to speak to him about these things. Wouldn't that be lovely? And I I don't mind talking to people about the things of God. I quite enjoy it. It's what I do for a living. But wouldn't it be great if the mockers and the scoffers, the ones who... Actively seek us out to make fun of us. Who get loud and shout and abusive. If we could put them on their heels. Where they fled from us. Where they knew that there was a higher wisdom and a power within us. That they could not answer to. And it made them afraid. 
where it made them not dare ask. Why? Not because they were afraid that we would commit violence against them. Not because they were afraid that we would mock them or scorn them. Because they were afraid that it, because it exposed the darkness of their hearts. It exposed the error of their faith, if they have faith. It exposed the, the, the misdirection of their lives. And they were afraid of that. You know when you take a rock, you pick a rock up and you expose the underside of the rock and all the worms and centipedes and bugs all hide. They hide away from the sun and the heat and the warmth. They're exposed. And so it is with the hearts of men as you expose them to the, the light of God's word. They flee and they hide. And they, 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 they. Would you say that this generation is afraid of the church of God? And again, not because of violence. Not because you know, we, we endanger them. Do you think they have a healthy respect? And that's what the word means here. It's a respect. A fearful respect. Do you think the world fearfully respects us? Do you think that they, they, they're afraid to ask us questions because they know that when we answer them, their sinfulness and their need of a Savior will be exposed to themselves. They will have insight into their situation. I don't believe the world to be afraid of us. I think the world treats us like, like simple children sometimes, you know? They look at us and go... You religious people. Oh, you're so cute. Oh. Patting us on the head and put us in the corner. We can sit at the children's table. Oh, I would have us, as, as Spurgeon said, unchain the lion. Allow him to defend himself. Jesus demonstrates the power of the word over the hearts of men. Let us not be afraid. Let us, as we talked on, on Wednesday, let us become familiar with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It is not a weapon of defense. It is a weapon of attack. Let us not seek friendship with this world. Jesus did not seek friendship with the Pharisees. He did not seek to come to a common ground or to maintain their respect. This is the elite. The political elite. The people in charge of the bureaucracy of his country. He would do well getting in with them. They were the aristocracy, the money, the old money. And yet he did not seek to be friends with them or to build a coalition with them. Exposed their hypocrisy and their lack of faith. Friends, if we desire to be successful in our spiritual lives, if we desire to be like Christ in this world, we must then begin to act like Him. Do not play the world's game according to the world's rules. Because the world keeps shifting the goalposts. Every time you think you've got the ball in front of the net, you're going to kick it. They move the goalposts away again. Or they say, no, no, you can't kick the ball with that foot. No, 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 no. You have to use your other foot. But I kicked the ball with this foot. No, no, no. I don't know if you've ever seen Irish football. Not football as in Irish, you know, like soccer. But Irish football, traditional Irish football. And traditional Irish football is like a cross between rugby and football. It has the craziest rules that I do not completely understand. But you're allowed to have the ball. You run with it. But every couple of steps, and I think it's, I don't know the exact rules, but every few steps, you must bounce the ball and kick it back into your hand. And run. And the, the men who do this are wonderful, amazing. You can see them do it. It's, it looks like... Australian rules football, but it's Irish. It's older than Australian rules. So they're running with the football. And as they, 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 they run, they drop, drop it on the foot, kick it back on the hands. And they never break stride. It's crazy. And then they have a football net with rugby pole nets as well. So you can either score a goal in their normal net or kick it through the posts. You can also rugby tackle people. 
it's crazy. I'm thinking, somebody just made up the rules as they're going along. They were like, no, 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 Seamus, you can't do that now. But you, know, you scored a goal. No, 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 no. And they just made it up as they went along. I'm convinced that the Irish just made it up as they went along. And, and uh, you know, every time somebody outperformed them, they said, no, 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 no. And they would change the rules. Well, the world is very like that. Every time you seem to be being successful or progressing, they change the rules and set you off on let us not play the rules of the world which you and I, who are not corrupt, can participate in. Let us be like Jesus, who saw to the heart of things and called people to righteousness. He did not go along with their fable and their myth. He did not say, well, you could be right and I could be right. And there's, who knows? It's hard to say. It's difficult. It's a clouded issue. It's, it's, a lot of people interpret it many different ways. Gosh. He said, have you not read? Do you not know? He unchained the lion and let the lion defend itself. Beloved, don't get into the game of theological debates. Don't get into the, 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 the game of defending yourself or what you believe. The world doesn't really care. It just wants to mock you. It just wants to contain you and trip you up, make you stumble, make you afraid to share your faith or to live your faith openly. They want to bully you into silence by bluster and noise and but everybody thinks like me. I do, but it doesn't mean you're right. Everybody in Nazi Germany thought the Jews were a despicable race. doesn't mean they were right. They thought it was okay to enslave them and use them as slave labor. doesn't mean it was right, just because the majority of the country thought it was. Wrong is wrong, no matter what way you look at it. Beloved, here Jesus defends the resurrection, defends angels, defends the spirit, challenges those so-called experts, exposing their error, exposing their unbelief. He calls them to repentance and to faith, demonstrates so clearly that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead, that all live before him. When you die in this world, you are still alive before God. And then, in doing so, these Sadducees would not ask. They feared him. There was a healthy respect. And Jesus got on with the business of asking, teaching, calling people to him. Beloved, the world does not fear us and it does not respect us because so often we have hidden Ourselves. We have sought to find a compromise with this world. We have sought to maintain a little bit of self-respect, as it were, so people wouldn't think we're utterly religious and being washed. But Jesus Christ demonstrates clearly how to live successfully in this world, so how to serve God above men. This small party of the Sadducees, the, the, the money, the social elite, the bureaucracy, the law keepers. They were fake and corrupt all the way through. Jesus didn't seek to, to make peace with them. Neither should you and I seek to make peace with this world. Regardless of how official it looks on the outside. Regardless of titles. Regardless of, of, of names. I'm high, Chancellor, Checker, whatever, blah, blah. I've got a gold badge. Who cares? Who cares? I've got a PhD, an ME3, whatever they what name, letters after my name. Who cares? Who cares? Simple observation and obedience to the scriptures supersedes all other knowledge. Remember that Jesus was, was a carpenter. I like that because the word carpenter actually means laborer. So probably Jesus dug ditches and did the, the, the hard work. You know, when you and I think of a carpenter, we think of someone who, who 
hammers nails and builds houses. The, the word for Jesus is, is laborer. It, it's, it's, a, it's a coarse term. It's one who does hard labor work. He, you know, he carries heavy burdens. He digs ditches. He does the grunt work. It's not valued, skilled labor. It's not like he was a professor or a high carpenter. No, he was a the lowest kind of physical laborer. And yet his knowledge of the scriptures superseded these bureaucrats, these keepers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, through his simple understanding and dependence upon the scriptures, was able to overcome the wisest people in the land. Beloved, there is hope for you and me. If we would just stop trying to be seen as the clever people, the PhDs, the Whatever, whatever, whatever. Let us trust God. Let us be like Mount Zion, which is immovable. Let us trust him and follow in his example. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Ask your blessing upon us. Lord, we we recognize it so often. We try and rely on our wisdom. So often, Lord, we try and uh, play the world's games and debate Lord, the people of this world and the difficult questions that they propose to us. Lord, but we see that you did not play their game. That, Lord, you did not partake in their fantasies and their myths. Lord, that you spoke the truth. You challenged them and exposed their darkness and their corruption and their lack of faith. You exposed their ignorance. Oh, Lord, please... As you've done this with us as well, so keep doing it with the people of this world. Lord, that you would silence them, and that you would, Lord, turn them around, that, Lord, you would call them to repentance, that, Lord, you would set them upon the narrow path. Oh, my God, I pray that you would help us to be unafraid. Lord, we are often far too fearful. Lord, our, our, our faith in you, extends only to the the things of the afterlife and not to this life. But Lord, help us to trust you in this life that you will, Lord, speak through your word, that you will bless us as we take up the sword of the Spirit. Please, Heavenly Father, help us to, to find that successful way that gives us victory over the wilds of the devil. Oh, Father, for we desire your glory. We desire the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, those who do not know you, for those who have not obtained to that resurrection, we pray, Lord, that you would give them insight, that, Lord, you would speak to their hearts as you spoke spoke to us, so you'll speak to them. Lord God, that you would grant them, Lord, a fearfulness. Lord, that you would grant them a, a repentance that leads to salvation. Lord, give them insight. Oh, Father, we pray. Give them no peace until they bow the knee to the Prince of Peace himself. Lord, we ask this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.